Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. Welcome to the China Shop. You made it. Get on inside. We're kicking the doors open. Excited to have another special guest episode with you for today. I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. Kyle, how are you doing today? Uh, I've had better days. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, think that's I just right. set a record for top ticks on my stops today. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I blew through all my capital pretty early, and I'm just watching my levels play like champs for the rest of the day. Oh, I hate Make that. me cry. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, enough about us. It's not about us today. We're joined by Kevin Rendino, Chairman and CEO of 180 Degree Capital. Kevin, how are you doing today? Hey, Dan. Hey, Kyle. How are you guys? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I, we're excited to talk to somebody who maybe uh, isn't getting top ticked every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun coming to the office every day, isn't it? I can't wait to get in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Kevin? Uh, I see you got quite the history of running some different funds with uh, some big names. Yeah, it goes fast. I, I was. Uh, it's been it's been thirty plus years now. I, uh, I graduated from Boston College in nineteen eighty eight from the Carroll School of Management with a finance degree and started my Wall Street career at Merrill Lynch Asset Management, which uh, eventually became BlackRock. And I was there. Really had one job for. 25 years. I was an analyst on the fund that I ended up running. Mm -hmm. Left in 2012 and um, to find uh, to find something else that I wanted to do, something more interesting than what I was doing at BlackRock near the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up at 180D Recapital. So uh, I've been a I've been an investor since the mid 80s. Seen a lot of weird markets, a lot of bear markets. This is another one. Live through them all, though, survive them all, and we'll we'll survive this one too. Are you? Yeah, I didn't hear you use the R word. You're not. I didn't. Are you? Uh, are you brave enough to call it a, a recession? I already think we're in a recession. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay, yeah. we're not. We're not crazy. The the uh, <laughs> look it up in the dictionary. Recession means recede, and when inflation is eating more than the economy is growing, uh, you're receding. Mm-hmm. So from here, it's a matter of degree, but we're already in one. That's my, right. that's my, that's my, uh, that's, that's our view. So what's the deal with uh, the White House then? Why are they uh, so hesitant to, <laughs> is that all to do with the election cycle? Doesn't every administration look at the glass half filled and the positive? <laughs> right. Right. Has yeah. there ever been an administration that was like, hey guys, we're fucked. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> And this, this has been going. This has been going on. We didn't have social media in the 1800s, but oh yeah, it's been going on since George Washington was in office. So um, that's a good point. 
Yeah. There, by the way, there are there are some positive things going on out there. I don't I don't want to lose sight of that. I mean, oh, it's a weird it's a weird recession when you've got full employment and you right. Yeah. You know, you've got people begging people to go to work. So it's a different kind of recession, but it's a recession nonetheless. So you said you've seen quite a few different markets. Like how does today's environment compare to anything you've seen in the past? Well, we haven't seen inflation since the 70s like this. So this one is different in the big headlines, right? Because the only thing that matters is the CPI number when they Mm -hmm. report it once a month. But I've seen the same investor psychology around bear markets. So, you know, that is all the same to me. You know, in in March of 2020, when we're in the the throes of the pandemic, if I told you the S&P was going to be up double digits, you know, 20 plus, two of the next three quarters, you would have laughed. If I said in 2009, when the S&P was 666, that the market was going to be up threefold in the next three or five years, we would have laughed at that too. So um, the, listen, investors trade on yesterday's news. Their time horizons for the most part are tomorrow's lunch. Mm-hmm. And they don't think through how different the world is going to be in three years. They, they just don't. So we think this is the end of the world, just like we thought it was the end of the world when the market crashed in 87 or when uh, we we had the uh, Kuwait War in 1990, or or dot com bubble in 2000, or the subprime mortgage meltdown in 08. It, it's all the same at the bottom, and, and mm-hmm. consumer confidence wanes. Investors fly flee flee from the market, and um, and of course they do it at the wrong time. So um, this recession is different, but the psychology around the bear market is the same. So, so what, uh, so what are you looking at then for your fund? Because it can't be easy for for small caps at this moment, especially with rising interest rates and the threat of another rate hike from the Fed. Yeah. So, you know, go back to when I I said we left BlackRock in 2012. I had a great job. I was running 13 billion dollars worth of money for BlackRock. Oof. Um, large cap value money, Graham and Dodd value. We're we're value investors over here and. Uh, and woke up one day and said, you know, how much value am I actually adding to the Johnson and Johnsons and the General Electrics and the Exxon Mobiles of the world? And I, <laughs> I love, I love the organization. I love my team. I, I love the people that I work with in our department, and I loved investing. But I realized it, it wasn't as as much fun as it used to be. Maybe because of Reg FD, uh, and also because of this, you know, train barreling down the tracks of ETF investing, and we owned. I mean, I worked for BlackRock, so there were, you know, iShares, they were at the forefront of all of this. So mm-hmm. I said, does the world need another large cap value manager with who runs a diversified strategy trying to beat the large cap value index by 200 basis points a year? And the answer was no. So I, I left. When I left, people didn't believe I was actually leaving. They're like, why would you ever leave this job? And I said, because I just... I, I just have done, this has been a joyride for me for, for this long. I've, I've done it fairly successfully. We've beaten the market. I just want a new adventure. So right. we ended up going to the, the micro cap world. You know, I set up a friends and family fund in 2012. It's called RGJ Capital. And we were focused on micro cap investing, large cap, I mean, a gram and dot value approach with an activist bent. 
mm-hmm. you know, involved in, in in attempting to help a company engineer a 180-degree turn. And that could be running a proxy contest or just recommending a new CFO or an IR firm. Just all the years that I had at BlackRock of of investing, trying to apply that to a, an asset class that was orphaned, essentially. Nobody covers it. Nobody, nobody follows it. And so uh, that ended up, I ended up joining the board of 180 degree capital's predecessor company. It was called Harris and Harris. It was a BDC focused on VC investing. Mm-hmm. Joined as a board member. The, the business was on its way to zero. I gave the a board a strategy for how to fix it, which was kind of doing what I was doing in my retirement. And they asked me to run it. So since 16, the beginning of 17, I've been the chief executive officer of 180. And we just invest in micro cap companies. And the reason why we do that is because the risk reward is greater than the large caps. How do you mean? uh, Because the the companies aren't followed by the sell side, because there's not a lot of eyeballs on the asset class because of the size. I mean... Mm -hmm. Fidelity runs a tr- you know six trillion dollars. They don't have a fund. They can't have a fund big enough to invest in microcaps for it to be economically feasible. So there's just not a lot of funds that invest in market caps. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Lipper category, there's you'd be hard pressed to find 25 funds that focus on microcaps. Whereas if you look at the large cap core space or the large cap growth space, there's you know 300. So, um, and the risk reward is just greater because nobody's paying attention. So if you get stock picking, right, there's a hundred percent upside in many of these names over a three year cycle at BlackRock. When we invested something, the upside was 50% over three years. Now it's well over a hundred percent over three years because it's just not examined and looked at in, in the same ways that the large, large caps are. It's almost like getting it at the ground floor of something. Yeah, it's just there's no index funds. There's there's a, we go to conferences. We're the only one in the room. Um, <laughs> if you listen, if you if you look at the transcripts for the earnings calls, you know if you look at Apple's, for example, there's it goes on forever, and there's you know ten analysts asking questions, and there's another thirty that couldn't. Right. With our companies, if we get one analyst on the call afterwards, that's like a celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm doing it because I think I'm adding value in a, in a way that I, I just couldn't do at BlackRock anymore because of this ETF phenomenon. And so, we're, I mean, I don't love <laughs> this environment in 2022. We could, I, you know, I've had enough of this, but in terms of what we're doing, I, I'm, we're, we're loving the opportunities that this market's creating, and we just we've had a great run also since seventeen. So, um, you know, I, I kind of love my job all over again, and, and that's what I was kind of heading towards when I left BlackRock. I wanted to wake up and love my job, and now I do. That's awesome. I recently got to experience that when I, you know, when Dan and I tried to dive into doing this full time. Uh, it's got its struggles, but it's still the most fun and the most enjoyment I've ever gotten out of a job. I think work ever. Yeah. Cause it feels entrepreneurial. Uh, cause it, I just enjoy it. Like, I just love everything about it. It just, I don't, I don't know how to really explain it other than that. You know, for me, it was funny when we were at Merrill, mm-hmm. we got lucky because, uh, Merrill at the time was run at the end by Stan O'Neill. Mm-hmm. 
who literally in the course of one year, maybe two years of decision-making destroyed a company that had been around for a hundred years because he basically decided, I don't want to be in the asset management business anymore, which happened to have been our business because it only grew at 15% a year. Whereas the subprime mortgage market, you know, that grew at 50% a year. Who wouldn't want to be in that business? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Right. So he, he sold our business to, to BlackRock. Thank God he sold it in. We closed that deal in the fall of 06. Fortunate enough to be able to have all my vested and unvested stock in Merrill Vest in 07. Mm -hmm. Happened to have been a year before the world ended. Yep. Um, So while I'll always view Stan as being one of the world's worst executives, I kind of owe him. He did you a huge favor. He did me a huge favor out of his stupidity because he allowed me to monetize Merrill. And so I was at Merrill. I, I, was, I loved BlackRock. I absolutely mm-hmm. love Larry Fink. I love the whole franchise. They built that business from scratch, literally from scratch. But as I said earlier, by 2012, I, well, I'll tell you, I was in, I was at a, we had a hundred, we had, I was on in BlackRock's leadership you know, top 100 leaders, and we had a leadership meeting in, in Half Moon Bay in California. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it. I, we were, this was during JP Morgan when they, they had the, the big bond meltdown, they had the, a bond trade that went awry. And, um, and I happened to have been my biggest holding at the time. And I was in, in Half Moon Bay with the team at BlackRock, not just investors, marketing people and mm-hmm. people, top 100 leaders. And, we were debating, you know, BlackRock's logo in, in, at this offsite. And while at the same time, JP Morgan was imploding, which happened to have been my biggest holding. And I remember saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I, I can't, I, I'm not even investing the way I, I don't have, the, they're not allowing me to invest anymore the way I right. want to invest because I needed to do other things, suit things. So I literally yeah. Yeah. And, and, and said, no more. And, um, and I, I stayed for another year or so until they found my replacement. But then at the end of the day, it was the best decision that I ever made. It was a great career. I had a great run there. But leaving to do this, as it turns out, and having a second career mm-hmm. has been infinitely – it's fun. Not that that wasn't fun, but it was not becoming fun anymore. And I, I recreated the fun every single day. So that's good for you guys if – if that's if you've created that for yourselves, because it's important. I just hope it doesn't end. <laughs> yeah, right. The world um, or, or the job? Both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either. Yeah, take your pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've listened to a lot of bunch of your stuff. It's 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 really good. Uh, I I wouldn't worry about it. You're, you're very talented, so. I just need to figure out then how to get more people to hear it. (laughs) That's that's the struggle. Keep it up. Yep. I'll help. I promise after this, I'll get on Apple and do the reviews. I got to ask you, um, you mentioned ETFs and the ETF phenomena several times here. And we just recently spoke with somebody who sees that as being the catalyst for the next major um, implosion or loss of value in the, uh, the, the markets. And his reasoning behind it was kind of interesting. So I was curious if maybe you can clarify, like, how does an ETF or somebody who holds a fund 
how do they handle like the voting of the shares? They so I'm I'm well. The, there's two different issues. Is uh-huh. is his implosion the implosion view? Because he believes everyone's in a movie theater, they're going to yell, yell fire, and everyone's going to try and get out at the same time. I think it's more that there's no actual governance really anymore because it's all in the hands of ETFs and funds. Like they're the only ones that have like the control to to vote on the issues and affect real change. Well, true. Um, and but most of these organizations, so that's not what I would worry about. I mean, mm-hmm. BlackRock. Fidelity, Vanguard, they have their own internal governance teams that attempt to vote the shares of the ETFs based on ISS, right? Like they, they, they are, they're not just rubber stamping votes at the end of the year. If, if ISS is opposed to certain uh, companies, uh, issues in a proxy they'll they'll state it mm-hmm. you know they'll say we support you know one two and three but we're opposed to four and five well blackrock will will also vote their shares the way their 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 governance teams suggest they should uh vote so it's not like they're not paying attention to to all that stuff in the and the more I think about it, it makes sense that, I mean, they have a vested interest in that company continuing to be run and managed well. 100%. And you, you listen, go, go listen to Larry. He talks about governance all the time. He talks about the environment all the time. He talks about a lot of the issues mm-hmm. um, uh, around investing in 2022 that aren't just about whether or not a stock price is going up or whether a management team's compensation is acceptable or, you know, um, so there, there, there's other factors. Obviously, ESG is a huge, has a huge weight. Right. So um, that's not what I would worry about. What I would worry about with ETFs, they're black boxes. They don't, do, <laughs> they don't do anything other than if they get money in, they buy the market. If they, if they have to redeem at the end of the day, they sell the market. And, what I would worry about is we're overexposed to a bunch of boxes. And if we all decide at the end of the day that we want out of the market, then the machines are going to crush the market. I mean, that, that, that's what I worry about with ETFs. Just outsized positions. Correct. And they are outsized. I mean, if you look at, geez, if you look at the holdings for almost any company and you look at the top two or three holders, Mm-hmm. up IBM right now. Vanguard's one, BlackRock's two. That's sixteen percent of the equity. State Street's three, by the way. Right, right. They're, all, they're all index funds. So, um, what's interesting though is because you know, we're activists, we and I don't do the large space because how much change can you actually affect? That's why I'm doing it with microcap companies because I can affect change right. very easily down here on the large space. I mean, there, there's the, there's the big, you know, whether it's Janice or, or the other activists, they can still affect change, even though they own maybe two or 3% of a company, but they've got to be able to convince state street Vanguard and BlackRock that the board should be thrown out. And that requires <laughs> uh, meetings like, yeah, 
Um, when I was at BlackRock, we many times would sit down with Janice, who was running a proxy contest against a certain company, and we would hear their pitch, and then we would vote. So activists can still have a uh, a place to ensure that governance is 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 proper for many of these large cap names. They just may have to convince some of these behemoth holders uh, that their views are the right views. Right. You need a. You almost need a, a uber rich person to be the one trying to go and affect it, like a Carl Icahn. Yes, he's uh, he's loud. He's he's proud. Uh, of of being loud. (laughs) And yeah, when he gets involved, you know, that's going to draw, see BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street are just never going to be public about it. Mm -hmm. They, they, which was another reason why I left is because I wanted to do activism. I couldn't do it there. Right. Because it's, we were able to write letters and, and, and vote our shares in a certain manner. When I was at Merrill in the early days, I mean, one of, one of my great heroes in investing was Arthur Zeichel. He, he basically was the founder of the Merrill Lynch asset management business hmm. back in the, in the seventies. He was a, an old Dreyfus guy, great value investor, Graham and Dodd value investor. So he was, a he was the uh, Targaryen uh, of, of, nice. <laughs> of the asset management nice. business. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, of, of Merrill Lynch. But he, and there was many times where I, we would go into meetings and say, you know, we're going to write a letter to, I'm just using IBM as an example. And he'd be like, not. And I'm like, what do you mean? No, we're not. He's like, if you don't like the way a company is being run, you vote with your feet. You just pull your capital. And that was just his view that he didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be messy. Remember Merrill also had a big banking business. Right. You want to screw that up for the bankers. So there, you know, that, that was, Part of the problem um, was, was being around a diversified company that had different interests and different businesses that relied on these corporate entities. Right. So he, he didn't want us to do anything, and BlackRock didn't want us to do anything really either in terms of it being public. Right. Um, we were at least allowed to write letters and get our hands dirty a little more behind the scenes, but as far as making a public stink, we couldn't be Carl Icahn or right. Harry Rosenstein a chance or anything like that. So, But now... Yeah, that, that's why I knew I wanted to leave because I wanted to do activism. I wanted to be public about some of the companies that we're investing in. You've seen that in our whoever's listening to this. Um, after you can go to just Google 180 degree capital and or Google some of our holdings and you can see some of the public letters that we've written. So we'll, we will get loud around some of our holdings if we think they're not being governed properly. What sort of things, uh, like, like, what sort of things do you get vocal about? Like, what do you need to see in order to be to try to go and affect some sort of change? When we think that a board is not running the business for common shareholders, or when we think the, I mean, the purpose of a board is to oversee the, the running of a business and to create value for shareholders, right? Right. It's not necessarily to run the business day to day. That's why they hire the CEO. The CEO hires a team, or her. her, her he or she hires a team, mm-hmm. uh, and then it's the it's the board's responsibility to keep a score keep score on how the management team is doing. And if they don't like the job that the management team is doing, or the management team isn't creating value, then it's their responsibility to go find another team. Right. And it's their responsibility to create value for shareholders. It's not their responsibility to be friends with the management team. Yeah. yeah. Um, or be in the pockets of the management team. It's not their 
job to rubber stamp everything that the management team is is asking them to vote on or budgets to approve. So, for example, Comscore is a name that we own. And, I, you know, Comscore has a great, wonderful business. They um, probably them and Nielsen are, are, are the two biggest companies. They measure uh, audiences, brands. It's a ratings company, right? Oh, okay. That's ticker SCOR for anybody who want to look it up. SCOR, yes. It, it's a, they've got great data. Nielsen's really messed up in the last three years because during COVID, they were basically providing false numbers uh, and companies were having a hard time of ascertaining their own business because they were relying on Nielsen data that was that sort of gone awry. Mm -hmm. So the industry is rebelling against Nielsen, creating more opportunity for a company like Comscore to take market share. Problem with Comscore is they, it used to be, there was an activist involved and um, they, they basically strangled, they had a stranglehold on the company's finances. They wouldn't allow the company to invest the way that they needed to invest. And new, a new set of shareholders came in Three of them, Cerberus, uh, Liberty, and Charter. Liberty Steel? No, no, Liberty Global. The, is that the one that uh, Gupta? John Malone's, comp- John Malone's company. The- okay, okay, not, not the steel industry. No, 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 the okay. telecom company. Liberty, <laughs> Liberty Global. All right. Um, they came in, they took out Starboard Value, who was the, the activist, who really, I mean, I, I respect the the, I love the guys at Starboard, but with the Comscore, they, 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 unfortunately, they, they didn't get the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, these preferred shareholders came in, and they were going to be the, the investors on the white horse that were going to save them. And everything they've done up until the last couple of months has been nothing. I mean, they, they literally have done very, very, very little other than collect the dividends that they're entitled to get paid. Right. Uh, They were basically overseeing the business with only their perspectives in mind, being the preferred shareholders, where, as I said, they they, they each took a 16% stake in the company and they got paid their dividend, but they weren't affecting change at the company. Right. The company needed a new CEO. Bill Livick, who is the prior CEO, is a a tremendous uh, name in, in, in the business, but... He was not the right person to take this company from where it was to where it was going. He, he spent a little too much time pontificating about industry trends and not enough time uh, worrying about the income statement and cash flow. Mm-hmm. And so we kept encouraging the board to do something about that, and they were very reticent to do that. We asked the board to convert some of their preferred. Comscore got kicked out of the index or was going to get kicked out of the index in June of this past year because their market cap was had declined below the, the set limit. Right. Because they don't count preferreds oh. as, part of, as part of the capital structure. Okay. Um, and so we a- asked, which, which is kind of silly because preferred is more senior to common, and it is part of the capital structure, but you know, they don't, they don't make the, Russell makes the rules and they don't calculate preferred holders. So when (laughs) preferred holders came in and took basically half the company and create and took the common and turned it into preferred, it killed the market cap of the company, the common market. And so we said, listen, you guys are about to oversee 
you're getting kicked out of the index, which is not a good thing for you. No. <laughs> and we, we want you to convert some of your preferred to come. And they wouldn't listen. And the company did get kicked out of the index in June. And they had it within their uh, sites to, 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 to save the business from getting kicked out of the index. We talked about, we talk, we've already talked about the indices and why they're important because that's where we're all for. Mm-hmm. So we got um, very agitated with the board for uh, not focusing on all shareholders, but only focusing on preferred shareholders. And we started writing letters, public letters. And we told the world that they're not doing their job as overseers of this business. And um, and they're responsible for the destruction of value that we've seen in the last year and a half because of their inaction or, or slow behavior. Right. And since our letters have been written, what you'll see is a new CEO, a new CFO, an entire new management team, a new chairman of the board. A new CEO, a new chief innovation officer, I see. Yeah, you got it all. And, yeah. and, wow. um, and you also see Cerberus, the chairman of the board was was a service appointed person, but you've you've actually seen Cerberus go into the open market and buy stock, buy common stock. So no, they did not convert what they had. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I didn't want them to convert and not get paid for their conversion. I just wanted them to align more with common shareholders, right? And uh, which so they didn't convert. But what they have done is they've gone into the open market and bought common stock. So you'll see if you look at the thirteen D filings or the form 4As, I should say, S4s, you'll see that Cerberus bought a million bucks worth of stock in the open market, not in the not too recent past, I think in the Mm -hmm. last three weeks or so, at these these prices. So is that the volume spike I see on like the 23rd of June? Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) No, no, no. no. The volume spike that you see at the end of of June 23rd was them getting kicked out of the index. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what that volume spike was. You'd have to go find the day that uh, service bought to see what the volume was, but it was no, no, no. That volume spike was the index adjusting to the fact that Comscore no longer is in the index. Mm-hmm. That's what that was. So, listen, what we do at 180, we try and buy real businesses with real franchises that have been mismanaged, mm-hmm. where we think if there's effective change that takes place that addresses the reasons why the stocks are down to begin with, then you can have a 1x, 2x, 3x type of return. And Comscore is a great asset with great data assets. It's uh, it's not like they're losing money. They actually throw off $35 million worth of EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're in the hands of somebody that is very anxious to improve the business model. They're making all the right decisions management-wise and with the income statement. They're going to cut some costs here in the not-too-distant future. And we think the stock has a chance to double or triple, not just go up 20% or 30%. So that's kind of what we do for a living. And we got to see, we try and help get the change afoot. And in this case, we can't run a proxy contest against Comscore because we're just not going to win because the preferred shareholders. Right own half the business, but we can uh, we can encourage them to do the right thing for shareholders by being public. We did so, and now they are, and we're thrilled. Well, and with a smaller company like that, when you talk about microcap, like you said, like the Johnson & Johnson, you're, you're not going to get them to budge by being, by throwing a, a you know, public spat. But when you have a smaller company like this, it's a lot easier for you to even work with them. Like, hey, here's the things that we see that are wrong, the ways that you can improve. This would be our recommendation. You can have a dialogue with them, whereas Johnson & Johnson may not even pick up the phone. That's right. And activism has 
different connotations to different people, but mm-hmm. I'm a, we're collegial and collaborative. Like we're not, we actually aren't Carl Icahn. Yeah. Cause Carl's not collegial and not super collaborative. No, no, he's more ultimatum. <laughs> yes. And uh, we're not that way. Like we, when we show up at the doorstep of a business, mm-hmm. it's because we want to own the business and we want to, and we think there's a couple things if the company does it, that's going to allow the business to engineer that 180 degree turn in its business. So we're just there to help. I would like to think that my 30 plus years, 35 years of experience being an investor could be useful to some of these companies, especially the small ones that don't know how to be public. They don't have a good IR firm They're They don't know what it's like to real, to, to make proper capital allocation decisions. They, mm-hmm. some of the boards are, you know, the, the companies were private, then they become public. The boards re- reflect the business that it looked like when it was private. Maybe some of the board members are friends with the CEO and they don't have the right skill sets to be a public company board member. And so we're just there to help. Yeah. Um, we don't actually, we've, we sit on many of the boards of the companies that we own, but we've never done a proxy contest ever because we haven't had to, the boards actually welcome us onto their boards. So whether it's the street.com, which, you know, we went on their board and we ended up selling the company or, um, Cinecore, we went on their board and we ended up selling the company, uh, or even board observer roles like Sonam or, uh, arena group. Like mm-hmm. we we were asked to go on. We didn't have to demand to go on and nor did we have to, to run this, you know, a public proxy battle, which is just time consuming for us. And it's time consuming for the company and takes away from a management team's ability to run their business properly. So we're collaborative collegial activists. We're not jerks. Now we can be jerks, right? but we don't start off as wanting to be a jerk. We start off where, where, how can we help you? Can we maybe solve your capital Structure problem. You know, many a couple of our companies, the street.com and we own Turtle Beach, they had these senior liquidation preferreds that were over overhanging the equity price. And we, we took the preferreds out with our capital. We replaced the preferreds with with common stock and the stocks were off to the races right after we did that. So we're just we're, we're truly there to help. Like it seems like it's a much better environment to to be more collaborative and and cooperative like that. Like if it gets to the point where you're going to have to start demanding and and being more combative, like what's the chances of the turnaround happening at that point? Because even if they do, you know, if you did had to go the proxy route and get like force a seat on the board, like are you still going to be able to affect change, or is everyone just going to be that's right defensive and and not wanting to work together everyone's just going to go into their shells and try to protect their jobs basically yeah that's why one one seat on a board of seven doesn't really matter all that much mm-hmm. um, from a voting especially if they don't want you there it, exactly right if they don't want you there and and uh, you'll be the person in the corner that you know everyone is going you know they t- the fork in the road everyone goes left and I'm you know I'm the only one talking about why the company should go why and you know right. tell you to pound, pound salt and that's the end of it so um, and then, you know, once you're on a board, even if you own 10% of a company, we own, you know, five, six, 7% of companies. Mm-hmm. Now you've got two hats. You're a shareholder and an investor, and now you're a board member. And so you can't just, you can't, uh, you can't run a, you can't send the com score letters out to the public if you're a board member. You just can't right. do that. It's not proper. 
you, if you're a board member, you're there to, again, you're there, there as a board member to support the management team and, and work with the board to create value. You're not there to become an outcast by writing public letters. You just, you're, right. you're wearing two hats. So we, and, and here's the other thing, you know, when you're on one side of the wall and you, you don't know how a company is being run, you know, you, we can show up thinking right. that this company has enormous value if they do X, Y, or Z, but we, we're not behind the curtain. We don't know where all the skeletons are buried. And, and to think that you can show up day one and demand that a CEO be fired or demand the board be replaced without knowing what the consequences of that action would be and what, right. you know, how, how that would affect the equity price is, is just being arrogant. Uh, that, yes, that was the word I was looking for. That we don't know. Uh, if that makes any sense, or we know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know a lot when you're on one side of the business and you haven't signed a non-disclosure, an NDA, where now you're under the hood. So mm -hmm. some of the stuff that we've done from a from an activist perspective has been after we signed an NDA, after we had access to a company's results, after we had access to a company's strategy, and that's when it becomes mm -hmm. collaborative and collegial. If we if we've signed on to what their strategy is, and then we can think. We, then we can go on and help them. So, what? How? Why? Would you be willing to weigh in on your thoughts on uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter and then backing out, saying like, "Once I looked at the books, I'm not in." I have a lot of respect. I have a lot of respect for people who are as smart and creative and have built businesses from the ground floor. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk, obviously has my respect from that perspective. And I would, you know, Tesla's, you know, Tesla's an unbelievable company and we can argue about the valuation, but look what he's done in SpaceX <laughs> and the rest. But honestly, when it comes to Twitter, I mean, he should put the red nose on. I think what he's done there is disgraceful, is utterly disgraceful. And I don't care about the whistleblower. The whistleblower was there to talk about a lack of security, which is a business issue. Right. Yeah. But when you buy a company, you're you're bound to buy that company. If you're going to walk away, then there's there's a breakup fee, unless there's an MOU. And in this case, there isn't a, there isn't from what I can tell, there's no fraud at Twitter whatsoever, and there's no basis for him breaking that his promise to buy the company. That's my opinion, and I think him him lobbying his, his whole. Using Twitter while he's buying Twitter, that seems really weird. Yeah, and so I have no respect for how he conducts himself at all. I think he's mm -hmm. uh, a child in in many many ways. And like I said, he's an unbelievable business operator and an unbelievable entrepreneur. But that doesn't mean that you can go on Twitter and say whatever the frick you want to say whenever you want to say it, especially when you're buying a company. I think he's. Um, I, I I see. Look, I, I'm a. I'm a, I love to bet. I'm a DraftKings person. I love sports, yes. and there's not there's nothing I won't bet on. <laughs> if I had to bet on it. He's he's going to be paying the Twitter a billion dollar check. Um, I'd be shocked <laughs> if he's not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. You guys share the same view or no? Uh, I I have a hard time seeing how he gets out of that deal. Uh, I I can see why he would be upset at the bot issue, but he needs to provide some sort of evidence to be contrary, and that shouldn't be going out in public either. 
Yeah. Like, it feels more like he's just trying to get a lower price because the price tanked after he agreed on a price that was way above the market value. Yeah. It bought buyer's remorse. Yes. Total buyer's remorse. It's too, I mean, you know, we'll probably end up doing, probably build a business to compete against Twitter, right? I mean, I would- <laughs> That's that's why I brought it up because listening to you talk, my first thought would be, well, if if he looked into the company as he's buying it, like wouldn't wouldn't he want to fix that problem? Like, okay, well, right. I'm here, here to fix Twitter and make it better. Like, it it feels really disingenuous to be like, oh, now now, uh, yeah, you're not what I thought you were. Get out. Yeah, there needs to be, uh, as, as you guys know, there needs to be a. Something has to happen, a material change that has to happen for uh, for lawyers and a court to basically uh, walk away from what, what the inevitable breakup fee is when you're doing a deal. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I don't really have a lot of respect for how he handled himself throughout that. And that's just my opinion. You're going to make a lot of friends in the China shop. <laughs> I don't own Tesla. I don't own SpaceX. I don't own Twitter. I don't, you know, it's not... What, and the, I had no stake in the game, uh, right. skin in the game on, on either side. It's, just, it's not a proper way to – we believe in proper corporate governance mm-hmm. and um, from, that, from a company. We also believe that investors should be proper in their behavior also, and I think there was a lot of improper behavior by him. Yeah. Okay. All right. Dan, are you taking notes? Because that's the way to, to start beef. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to start beef? Yeah, right. That's right. how you do it. Well, well uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to corporate governance. Carrying a samurai sword at work when you're the boss. Thoughts? Who's who's carrying a samurai sword? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. <laughs> oh, I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, here's an, here's another one, by the way. Now we can argue whether or not he stole Facebook from the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, that's right. But um, I can't. I mean, I. It seems like he's getting weirder and weirder in his old age too. I just listened to him on Joe Rogan uh, over the weekend. That was quite a fascinating interview. I didn't hear it. So how what, did he? Did he sound? He actually sounded well composed. It's he just is completely sold on this VR reality and that everything is going to be moving into a virtual space. Yeah. Now, look, I'm 56, so um, I'm not going to be buying um, real estate in the VR world. In the metaverse? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I don't even know. I I feel like that's going to end badly for a lot of people. Just listen, you you guys have seen bubbles before. Bubbles, Mm -hmm. they're different things, right? Like it started with the gold rush way back when. Tulips. um, And we've got a dot-com bubble. Uh, subprime mortgage bubble, um, crypto bubble, tech bubble. This is all, all yeah. And so the VR thing feels like the uh, cannabis bubble. Um, that that just feels like. First of all, I'm not going to be able to, to understand it, nor do I want to. Well, here's the thing with Musk that I always go back. Uh, not Musk. I'm sorry, uh, Zuckerberg. Now you made, you mentioned the controversy around the, the starting of Facebook in general, but what thing has he done with Facebook that was innovative and first? Because most of the things that he's tried to pivot the company to that I've seen is he uh, they fail and then they go out and just buy somebody else that's doing it better, like Instagram, like Instagram, like WhatsApp. Yeah. No. Well, whether he created it or not, he, he created Facebook. So that's that's what he since then. Yeah. Again, we can argue: did he did he do it, or did the Winklevoss twins do it? But <laughs> e- either way, he he did that. Yeah, 
but I would agree that 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 has run its course, and I don't see this VR strategy. That's not why people own Meta, whatever Metaverse. No, they own it for the data that Facebook collects. Exactly. So he's also got a time horizon, probably of fifty years. Mm, yeah, <laughs> right. I don't think I do anymore now either. Yeah, that's not why people <laughs> own people don't own Metaverse because of virtual reality. So. Uh, he's paying up for assets. That's for for, for dang sure. Yeah. Um, and whether they work or not, I don't know. But he was successful once. I guess I don't necessarily think I want to bet against that. But I don't see how right. this this also the thing that he was successful at. He, he you can monetize mm-hmm. in and you can have an income statement around it that resonates with shareholders, investors, right. The other strategy doesn't feel like it's got teeth with regards to revenues and earnings and cash flow and the rest. Right, but doesn't that usually come later in those types of uh, in those types of innovations? Yeah, of course. Yes, they do. There was a lot of TV manufacturer in the fifties that that weren't around in the you know five years later because everyone was trying to make TVs at the same time. So right. it does come later. Uh, in this case, people would be betting on the later. Um, but just because it, you know, it's like the dot com in two thousand. Yeah, you know, we could have had a similar argument. Well, this will all come later, you know. Right, right. And it and it ended. So yeah, of course there there was companies that were successful that came out of that. But it feels like ninety eight percent of them, you know, went bust in a year. So yep. I'm not saying he's going bust in a year, but you get better be careful about the billions of dollars of investment he's going to be making if it's going to impact the income statement. Because at the end mm. of the day. He runs a company that has a hundred and forty-six dollar stock price that's dependent upon current valuation, also. So mm-hmm. uh, you can't R and D your way to an industry that doesn't exist quite yet, and 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 maintain a hundred and forty-six dollar stock if your earnings are going to go down. So right I, again, nothing but respect for that guy and what he's done. Um, it's just it feels a little off the beaten path right now in terms of what he's doing. Away from or away from the core. Yeah, I'm definitely not a fan of of the man, and I've I've said it pretty vocally trying to start beef because you know if Facebook ever mentioned us, we'd blow up. Uh, <laughs> I like Kyle alluded to. He he's I haven't seen any real innovation come out of that company, in my opinion. It just seems maneuvering. It's just a marketing machine, and 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 basically, a lot of their customers can't stand them. They just had to deal with them. You know, yeah. they didn't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a little bit of pushback there on on, on that. You know, yeah. you will do X, Y, or Z, or you will not be featured. Um, oh, right. that, that doesn't work with the Proctors and Gamble, Procter and Gambles of the world um, forever. And then, of course, there became issues with their security and uh, and the rest. So there's a, you know, it's almost, I don't want to call it Nielsen, but it, it, it's, they're, they're experiencing a lot of pushback from their end users. Mm-hmm. Are there end customers who who advertise with them because of their sort of monopolistic behavior and attitude in the last five to seven years? Mm-hmm. Wanting to ask you, going back to to Turn's uh, strategy and Turn being the symbol, if we hadn't mentioned it yet, yes, uh, for for one hundred eighty degree capital, but 
do you focus on like specific sectors? Like, do you feel like you get a better read or understanding of certain sectors or do you uh, just, do you have a set criteria that you look for when you're trying to pick some of these stocks that you think are, are ripe for a turnaround? So what we are Graham and Dive value investors. Mm-hmm. And when we buy something, it trades at two thirds of the market multiple and either price to earnings or cash flow, half the market and price to book above average yield, one time enterprise value to revenue, the, those are the screens that we run. I, I've always been a value investor. I come from the Columbia School, New York, NYU Stern School of of Graham and Dodd. Benjamin, you know, for a long time, I think my kids thought that Graham and Benjamin Graham was like my uncle. No. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about him so much. So it doesn't matter the industry as long as the stock fits one of the screens. Mm-hmm. Now, we do have a proficiency of being better investors in industrials and in materials in information technology, um, energy, financials, less so healthcare. You know, biotech is just, it's never going to fit my value orientation. You know, the, these companies are here for the promise of tomorrow. And yeah, they're lottery tickets, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. We don't invest in lottery tickets, we don't invest in ideas. We invest in real companies with real balance sheets, with real businesses, with real management teams. And so infotech, industrials, and materials, parts of consumer discretionary represent most of the value of our holdings. Mm-hmm. You look at our companies, Comscore, Arena Group, uh, Landtronics, Quantum, uh, Synchronous, uh, Alta Group, Potbelly, uh, they, they all sort of are in the same four or five industries. Uh, okay. So I was looking at the right. Yeah. I was going to ask you about arena group then. Cause that was a healthcare company or it's, at least it's listed as one arena group is the old Maven. Maven is a technology platform company that runs the digital sites. Like they run the digit, they run the digital business for sports illustrated. They run the digital business for the history channel for biography. It's definitely not healthcare then. For the street. Yeah. It was called the Maven <laughs> group. They did an uplist recently. They changed the name name of the company from Maven to the Arena Group and the symbol from MVEN to AREN. So AREN was a healthcare company before. Is that is that right? Oh, so they just haven't updated it yet? Probably. Oh, all right, that makes yeah. It's, it's just cable and other pay television services and the summary yeah. of it. But no, Arena <laughs> Group is a is a media company that that I said runs the digital assets for. A lot of brands that you and I know. Mm-hmm. The, 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 essentially, the technology backbone. Are there any specific sectors that you think are going to outperform going forward? I do think when the dust is settled, uh, I think most of these supply chain issues that have plagued the information technology world mm-hmm. are COVID-induced, COVID problems. You know, we unfortunately, you know, the economies have obviously done quite well throughout COVID mm-hmm. from a demand perspective. It's been these company, these countries that uh, manufacture chips um, that don't have the same vaccination rates across their country that the U.S. does, for example. Right. A-at-home orders are still taking place. So we think the information technology world has been crushed by, you know, trying to find demand from company countries that are still experiencing COVID more than we are. Hmm. Uh, we think that's likely 
going to play itself out in the next two or three months. And the, the, the stocks have gotten demolished. Uh, yeah, I was looking at some of those, and they're actually either near or below some of their COVID lows. Yeah, many of them are all-time lows. Mm-hmm. All-time lows, despite the fact that they're still reporting pretty decent results. So uh, we our thing with information technology has always been, even going back to the 80s at, at Merrill and BlackRock, mm-hmm. we, they're cyclical. Yep. And people forget cyclical. They you buy them when they we buy them when everyone hates them and we sell them when everyone loves them. Right. And valuations get extreme on both ends because of the sexiness of their business. So, I mean, I I've invested on and off in Micron for 30 years. And at the bottom it's the worst company in the world and at the top it's the monopoly. <laughs> and um and reality sits somewhere in between. So, Right. It's like that for all of our tech stocks. So we like, and they, they do offer growth aspects to their business, honestly, but we like to buy them at value prices. Mm-hmm. But that's why we like technology. But we only like it after they've gotten slaughtered like they have since November of last year. Uh, they still got room to go, it looks like, too. They could. Some of them. Yeah. Oh, to the downside, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm never good at picking bottoms or calling bottoms. I'm, I'm good at, Picking bottoms, you know, if you give me a few months, picking the exact right. day, I, I don't care what, what the exact day is. Like, if I think that Lantronics is going to 10, mm-hmm. 5.13, I don't care if it's really going to 480 first. We're, we're investors. Right, right. Um, and I can't control what somebody else is going to do with their Lantronics holdings tomorrow because they got some redemption and they have to sell it. Mm-hmm. And they don't care about the business or the price. They just, they know they have to sell it. So. When you get into these kinds of markets, the good news about 180, we have permanent capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody can take away our, our money. And that bodes well for us during di- you know dislocation periods like today because everyone's getting redeemed. People have to sell. Everyone's scared. They, they sell at any point. They throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we sit right. there with the bucket. And just try to catch it all. Catch it all. Yeah. The water, not the babies. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Of course. The valuable oh, stuff. Priorities. <laughs> Exactly. So I, 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 on the one hand, I hate this period. On the other hand, I'll look back in three years and I'll be like, thank God we had it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to follow up real quick with the semiconductors before we wrap up here. I was curious if you thought the, the Ethereum or cryptos had anything to do with the semiconductor shortages, you know, exacerbating at least the supply chain issues. And if so, do you think like the merge with Ethereum switching away from uh, basically, I'll put it in layman's terms. Like they don't, you don't have to mine it anymore, so you're not using graphics cards like the same way Bitcoin is. Like if that should help alleviate some of that stress of the the supply chain. If if you were in fact aware of of those things. Oh yeah, yeah no, the, I'm, the I'm, I'm quite aware. I I think they're they're um, for me. I, I do think it alleviates. Um, but I don't. What matters the most for for semis, in my mind, is the growth in the actual economy. Mm-hmm. You know, like Ford can't make enough cars right now because they can't get enough chips. Right. Um, that's not good for the semiconductor industry because it, cars are now becoming computers. Mm-hmm. Air, airlines are computers. IoT, the Internet of Things, is a real thing. So whether it's data centers, uh, data warehouse builds, um, 
you know, all, all these things are, we're, we're using more and more silicon than we've ever used before, and we will continue to use more and more silicon. Storage obviously requires more and more memory mm-hmm. than we've ever had before. I, I think semis, this is why I get back to my comment before about their cyclicals, they really are economic, economically dependent. One of the reasons why they've gotten hit the most is because they are economically dependent and they did have rich valuations. And if the world's worried about a recession, then, you know, semiconductor sell-off is going to continue. So I, I think semis, ma- I think the real economy marries matters more for the semis than does the crypto world. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of what our view is. Sounds good to me. Dan, do you have anything to, to follow up with? No, so if I had $500 and I wanted to be a millionaire tomorrow, do I need to what? Rob a bank? Yeah, I, I um, five hundred and uh, <laughs> trying to, I'm trying to find. I guess you can have a few months. You can bet on like Jacoby Prissett to win the NFL MVP. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Okay, Jacoby. I'm trying to think of where the highest odds are for any bet in the world, or you can go get a lottery ticket. I need to go on DraftKings. You're saying that—that's where I'll—I'll I'll do that. Or you can do the smart thing, and you don't have to become a millionaire tomorrow. Mm. But you can buy turn stock at five dollars and eighty cents when our book value is north of eight dollars and thirty-five cents. That makes sense. Whoa. Okay. You so you're saying they're having a fire sale on shares of turn right now? Turn. Yes. Turn is well. Look, go look at our S fours. Look. Look what I've been doing personally. Or. I, I did see a bunch of uh, insider buy alerts uh, with your name attached to it. That's right. You know, I'm going to have to file a 13D at some point if this continues. But <laughs> <laughs> I believe you put your money where your mouth is, and if you're going to run a publicly traded company, you better have skin in the game. Yeah. And at least your shareholders know that you're aligned with them. So right. I like stocks that trade below cash per share. Uh, cash and liquid securities per share, uh, per share, we do. And I like stocks that traded $5.87 when book value is well north of eight. Right. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So I'll do that all day long and they'll probably go down a nickel a day until I'm broke. But I know I'm going to get paid for this investment. You know, at some point, it may be a little while, but you have time frame. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, one last time, can you tell everybody where uh, they can find if they want to learn more about uh, 180 or follow you guys on any socials? Yep. 180, the number, 180degreecapital.com is our website. You could see uh, our holdings uh, on our. We're very transparent about everything we do. We tell everybody what we own. Some videos on there about our process. There's some investment marketing decks in there that really go into depth about what our performance has been and and how we think about investing. Um, It's a pretty comprehensive website. So go there. You can always listen to our conference calls uh, that we do every quarter when we report our earnings. Some say I have interesting shareholder letters. You can retrieve those on Edgar or on our website. And then on Twitter, um, once a month or so, we we, uh, will write a white paper on the industry. And you can see that at 180 degree cap on Twitter. 180 degree cap. Make sure links for all that stuff are in the episode description. Absolutely. Uh, and I really enjoyed this. This was the, my favorite hour of the week. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad we persevered because uh, there's a little bit of a snafu trying to get you in the shop initially. 
No, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I'm, I'm joking. It, it was uh, it was one of my my favorite hours of the year because um, at least for one hour I didn't have to stare at my screen, and that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of my favorites too. Uh, yeah, man, I'd have to get you back sometime. Okay. Dan, you want to take us home? Okay. Thank you again, Kevin. This has also been a really fun hour for me. I, I, I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank, thank you, too. listeners, for sticking around to the end. We hope you enjoyed this interview. I know I'm checking out uh, Turn. I got this, been, I've been staring at the talk, stock ticker the whole hour. <laughs> that's why that's why i brought up the the 500 bucks is, is I, I i'm really glad that you, you hit that one out of the park that was great yeah just great time but unfortunately we do have to always close up shop and we've hit that time so thanks mm. for sticking around uh, like share subscribe rate all that amazing stuff you know what to do dear listener you know what you're doing we'll be back at you soon until then happy trades bye everybody Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.